Welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we're going to talk to our first guest, will be Sean Leopardi. We're going to talk briefly about the Muskie Max show this weekend in Pennsylvania. It's a really cool two-day show. Most of these shows are a little bit bigger, little uh, three-day shows. And so we're going to talk to Sean about that. And then we're going to go and talk to Ryan Elizondo. We're going to talk about Tiger Muskies out west, specifically Washington. He grew up fishing around Illinois, and so we're going to kind of compare and contrast a little bit about that and just kind of talk about his fishery out there. Hopefully you can take a few things that he talks about in his fishery and maybe it apply to your own fishing this season. And as per usual, I'm joined by my guest host, Brad Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. Brad, guess what? We're, I mean, when people are listening to this, we're literally going to be mm, a day away, potentially. We might even be setting up the show. Mm-hmm for Minnesota Muskie Expo this weekend. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. It's coming down to a head here real quick. So, you know, the day this comes out, the following day, we will both be setting up for Minnesota and preparing for another show weekend. So, yeah, Brad, Mus- Minnesota Muskie Expo, it's been 36 months since we've been there. We missed two shows there. I mean, the weather's looking good from what I could tell in the long-range forecast. And, I mean, hopefully it's going to be a, an awesome weekend. People are going to be excited to come out and and uh, talk all things Minnesota muskies because, like I said, it's been a long time since we've been to a show in Minnesota. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does sound like there's a ton of people anxious for this show, and they're all looking forward to it. So I'm thinking we're going to have a good crowd. we got a new location, a uh, new weekend, that I believe, as well. So, you know, 36 months later, here we go again. We're going to be back in Minnesota. Hopefully this thing just tears apart you know i think everybody's excited about it and uh i'm excited as well yeah some of the details are this is at the minnesota state fair grounds it's march 4th 5th and 6th so when you hear this episode it would be within the next couple days it's uh friday saturday sunday deal i don't exactly know the hours i'm assuming we open somewhere around two o'clock on friday we must go till eight to eight to nine somewhere in that ballpark and then uh, usually it's like nine or ten o'clock in the morning on saturday until i don't know whatever five six seven I, I haven't even looked that, that closely at it. So m- Friday, March 4th, we are open from 2 p.m. until 8.30 p.m. And then on Saturday, March 5th, it's 10 a.m. to 6.30. And Sunday, March 6th, it's 10 to 4. So looking forward to seeing some people out there. Should be an exciting show. So let's see here. 4 o'clock. Takes us two and a half hours to get out of there. 6.30. I might make it home by 11 o'clock on Sunday night, so that'll be good. We'll get to go and start the, the whole process, putting orders in boxes again on, on Monday. Fun times, Brad. I love show season. <laughs> well, there's always a lot of work and build up to, to get to the next step, but hey, it's the last show of the year for me. I think you have one more after this. This whole winter is kind of blown by with all the snow plowing I've been doing and everything else around here. I'm looking forward to getting through this last show and back to normal business. Yeah, for sure. I And like Brad had mentioned, I have one more show. Team Rhino Outdoors will be at the Wisconsin Muskie Expo, and I believe that's the 18th, 19th, and 20th of March. So we go from Minnesota, we have one weekend off, and then we go right back to Wausau, and we finish up our, our uh, show season at the Wisconsin Muskie Expo. Usually those two are always back-to-back, and then, I don't know, schedules change, things flip-flopped around. It used to go Wausau, and then we'd finish up at Minnesota, and now we flipped around and we finish up without back-to-back weekends, which is a blessing for us. Back-to-back show weekends is very difficult to turn around and turn and burn that quick. But 
it it'll be nice and it'll be fun to see everybody there at the Wausau Expo and you know uh, Rothschild I believe it is and so that'll be fun as well but Brad you got anything else to add to this episode because if not we're going to get Ryan and Sean on the phone no I don't think so Jeff I'm just looking forward to seeing everybody out there and we'll see you within a day or two after you listen to this all right, our first guest today is going to be Sean Leopardi, and we have Sean on because he's going to talk about Muskie Max over in, I think it's in, it's technically, where's where's the location? It's in Pennsylvania, but I don't exactly know the, the location. Sean, where, where are we going yeah. to be at? Just south of uh, Pittsburgh. The venue's called Printscape Arena. We've been hosting it there. Um, I think this is our third season there, and we really like the venue. They work with us really well, and the exhibitors, Seem to like it because it's easy in and out with the commercial doors and the the turf floor. It's an arena style um, setup. That turf floor is very forgiving on their legs. And and anybody who's participated in these shows, you know that it's fatiguing after a while. So we're excited, very excited. Absolutely. I was going to say Pittsburgh, but I wasn't sure if that was exactly right. That's where I was going to go with that. Good thing you clarified. So Sean. It's been 24 months, but you guys only missed one show season, unlike Minnesota that we're heading to the same weekend that your show is on. That one, they missed two. You guys were one of those fortunate ones, like the Wisconsin Muskie Expo, where you literally just snuck it in, and days later, things were shutting down. I'd imagine you guys are excited to be back, you know, hosting a show. We are thrilled. That was, honestly, guys, that was one of the toughest decisions I had to make. Um, Based on the mandates and, and, you know, venue closures and things like that, I waited. I think I was probably one of the last ones to make the decision. It wasn't until like December of the of the year prior that uh, we decided to just punt and reschedule. Unfortunately, but yeah, it was it was a tough decision. And I got to tell you, I'm super excited about uh, 2022 Muskie Max. Just the response from attendees and just the vibe that I have right now from the exhibitors who participate. It's ramping up to be something very exciting. Yeah, I'm sure I can speak for Brad. I know that it's uh, it's an unfortunate thing that the Minnesota show or in, in previous years, the, the Wisconsin Expo fell on the same weekend because all I hear is good things about that show. I've, I've been out there, like I think it was your very first year I helped Custom X in the, in the booth there. And I think at that point, maybe it was only a one-day show or, or was it an early closer on Sunday? I don't remember exactly how that worked, but... I mean, it had the beginnings of a great show then, and I've heard it's only gotten better. Well, I appreciate the feedback, but it's it's really, I think, the quality of the exhibitors and the pro guides that have been with us for a long time. It's just, I think the people in western Pennsylvania and, the, and actually the tri-state area have really grown to love not only the event, but the, the camaraderie, all the people, the, the relationships that they've formed. It's just a really neat thing. I'm super excited. and just glad that we put this together almost 10 years ago that's pretty incredible i've heard nothing nothing but great things about that show and actually i was kind of planning on coming there this year but uh the way things unfolded you know like jeff had mentioned unfortunately i'm going to be in minnesota but we we will have some representation there i guess we work with john betty quite a bit with stealth tackle so uh we're going to have a few baits in his booth so that always helps out but one day i'm going to come out there and see you I hope you do. We'll have a lot of fun. So, Sean, a lot has changed in the muskie world over the past couple of years. For newer anglers, and I think there's a bunch of them, 
What can they expect coming out to see them see you at the Muskie Max? Well, I think um, a couple different things. The breakout sessions, the seminars from the guide, they're always informative only because these, when we select them, they, they cover different bodies of water and even rivers and things like that. And I think it, you just learn a lot in the, the atmosphere that we've created with Muskie Max. It's conducive for learning. We never want anyone to feel embarrassed, ask questions, things like, like, like that. We um, actually encourage it. We promote it. And on Sunday... We do this thing, we've done it the last few years, and it's pretty popular. It's called the Ask Us Anything session, where we put six of the pro guides up on the stage, and the crowd can pretty much, you know, unscheduled, unrehearsed, they ask questions, and it's it's hilarious, some of the answers. And, and the guys are all great. They do a, a lot of really neat things there. So I think one thing is you can learn a lot from the seminars. I think that these uh, lore makers and some of the other manufacturers, they just keep coming out with, you know, really super high quality products. And um, they launch them at a lot of these shows. There are show specials. I just, I look forward to so many pieces. And to your point at the beginning of this podcast interview, it's just something that you get excited and ramped up for. And you, you realize how much you missed it. We're just thrilled. So for people that want to get involved and come out and check out the show, can you get tickets in advance? We don't really push advanced tickets. It's more about, you know, you get in your line and we're managing that line. And, and we've done things over the years to keep it organized and, and get people in there. But there's such a following for certain manufacturers or, you know, lure makers and, and things like that, that that are part of our show. It's exciting to see how excited these guys are. It's, it's almost like a cult-like atmosphere to a degree. Yeah, absolutely. I know some of the small bait makers that you guys get out to that show, you won't find them anywhere, I think, except for your show. Is that right? I mean, some of these small-time guys, that's it. They gear up for the Muskie Max, and, and they release everything they can right there, and, and you might not hear from them again until next year. Right. That, that's it. I agree. They're, they're not producing thousands and thousands of lures, and Honestly, guys, I think that's one of the things that really helped some of these smaller bait makers and, and other tackle producers when we were able to squeak in the last Musky Max before the big uh, shutdown and pandemic and everything else had happened. Musky Max was the last big expo in the area before Planet of Earth shut down. And um, I was so fortunate to get that in, particularly to help a lot of these exhibitors stay afloat because they're... Nobody had a crystal ball, and you didn't know it was going to happen in, in 2020. So um, I was just glad that everything came together for them. And, and you're right. I think they make a lot of unique products, and they don't have the exposure that some of the bigger manufacturers do, and they really prepare for this show. You know, it's amazing to me, all the different builders that they've come over the years from the eastern part of the country, you know, whether it's Virginia, West Virginia, PA, I mean, you definitely have a bunch of unique builders out there that are manufacturing some really cool lures. So definitely go check them out. There are new guys on the market and, you know, some of the stuff that they're coming up with, it's really tremendous. Their, their paint jobs and some of the action on these baits are incredible. Then all of a sudden you've got these other ones that have been around for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And they're like legends in their own right. And it's really cool to be able to spend time at a, at a smaller event like Muskie Max where you can actually go and talk to these people. And uh, like I said, they're legends and it's, 
it's just a it's a great atmosphere for for that. We really encourage that as well. So, Sean, before we let you go, if somebody wants to learn more about the Muskie Max, how can they go about doing that? Well, I think a couple different ways. Our, our social media site is very, very active. It's Western Pennsylvania Muskie Max on, on Facebook and Instagram. And then the website, we keep that updated with a lot of information. So there's a lot of good information out there. We just actually posted the 2022 floor plan. I know a lot of people check in. They want to know where certain exhibitors are going to be positioned. So it's funny to see the engagement through social and just the excitement and how revved up these men and women are about this, the show that's coming up next weekend. For sure. So Sean, I guess, um, unless there's something else you need to add to it, I think that pretty much covers most of what you have going on. And I hope you guys have a great show. I know that it seems like as the show season's going on, you know, everything seems to be settling out as far as COVID numbers and whatever. And attendance seems to be ramping up and guys are, guys and gals are jacked up to get out and, and check out all the new gear. So I hope you guys have a great show. Yeah, we, I think it's going to be super exciting. I checked weather-wise for Western Pennsylvania, um, the 10-day forecast, and next weekend looks really good. So I think the exhibitors can get in there, get set up, you know, get home safely and things like that on Sunday afternoon. So everything looks good there. Um, I appreciate you guys inviting me on the Backlash podcast. This is great. I think this is maybe the second or third time, and I sincerely appreciate what you're doing there. It's a, it's a great podcast, and it really helps us to promote as well and i thank you for that absolutely you're welcome we like to give the uh stage to all these shows we want to get as many people out to the shows and just you know have everybody have a good time at these at these events i mean the work that goes into them you know it i know it brad knows it it's unbelievable how much work goes in behind the scenes and to you know have a great show is it's a great feeling and it's great that they're back all right our guest today is ryan elizondo and not necessarily a household name for musky fishing, but definitely has a cool story to talk about because he fishes in a faraway land that none of us really ever go visit or even hear much about. So, Ryan, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to join us on this podcast tonight. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Day by day, we're getting through it, doing some show prep. We got to go uh, do that show deal again. You know, I got to see you down in Chicago. That's kind of how we hooked up on this podcast, and we're about ready to hit the road again. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on, and it was great seeing uh, you and Brad down at the Chicago show. So, Ryan, to make things short and sweet, what got you into chasing muskies, and in particular, what had you going? Well, why don't you talk about the fisheries that you fish too? Because, like I said, that's a uh, it's an up and coming. I don't know if it's an up and coming deal or not, but it's definitely a place where most muskie anglers wouldn't even think to be chasing fish. Absolutely, yeah, it definitely has taken up, taken a rise in the last few years. I grew up, though, in Illinois, fishing some of those waters as a kid, fishing with my dad, anything basically that would bite. Uh, and then uh, getting into my teenage years, there was a lot of sports, so I didn't really uh, fish too much. But as I got older, working, my mom and I had the same days off. We would always fish together. So that was kind of a passion of ours, uh, always making time to get on the water. Then senior year of high school, I blame my buddy Kevin Schrader for uh, getting me into this darn sport. Caught my first muskie uh, from Lake Shabnaw in Illinois. And then from there, took a trip to Lake of the Woods with his family. And then uh, throughout my 20s, we kind of got uh, fishing 
all the local waters in Illinois, Indiana, southern Wisconsin, even Kentucky. So we traveled quite a bit. Now, how long have you been out in Washington State, Brian? I moved here in 2017, or sorry, 2012, to be here with my sister. She's been out here for quite some time, um, and my nephew. So it's been almost 10 years now. Very cool. So, you know, do you get any time fishing here in the Midwest yet, Ryan, or is that something that's kind of went away to the wayside with the move? I still get back there, usually once or twice a year, fish with friends back from uh, Illinois. We call ourselves the Muskie Freaks, so we always have our group chat. They usually plan a trip to Eagle Lake every year. Obviously, with COVID and everything, it's been a challenge, So, but it sounds like something might happen this year. But I usually try and get back and fish with those guys or some of them come and visit out here as well. Super cool. Well, let's shift gears. Let's talk about Washington State and what it kind of has to offer. I don't know how many different bodies of water are out there, but, you know, it, it's been something that's been talked about for quite a few years. And I don't know when that all started. Maybe you can fill in the listeners on some of that stuff. Absolutely. So the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, they stocked the first lake, which was Lake Mayfield in 1988. Now there is a total of seven lakes that are consistently stocked. There are three on the west side of the state, and then there is four on the east side of the state. My home water is Lake Taps, so it's about an hour south of Seattle. Roughly 25 to 2,700 acres, uh, depending on the water levels which they uh, lower throughout the winter. And then it actually just filled up recently, uh, which is earlier than normal. So but the public launches are closed. And so the only way to get on the water is through private launches. Is a lot of that in like national park, state park, or what kind of waters are we looking at? I mean, is it uh, residential around it or is it pretty much just all forest, if you will? Lake Taps is uh, pretty heavily populated. A lot of large homes, uh, a lot of recreational boaters. The other two lakes on this side of the state, there's not many houses on the water. So it's hillsides, mountain, mountainous background, everything. On Lake Taps, you can see Mount Rainier pretty much from anywhere on the lake, which is pretty cool background. But it can be challenging, too, as well with those recreational boaters and only two public launches on the lake that have very limited hours to fish. Are these natural lakes, Ryan, or are these reservoirs, or what are we dealing with in that aspect? All the lakes are reservoirs. The water levels do fluctuate sometimes throughout the year. Like I said, Lake Taps, they lower every winter uh, to uh, take in consideration the runoff from the mountains every spring. And it's, it's very odd because there are certain years where they lower more than normal, where you can't even launch a boat. I mean, it's actually not pretty to look at in the winter times. It's basically a big stump field. Uh, wild. Is there, I'm, I'm going to assume that you have brush and, and trees, probably laydowns and things like that, that you're fishing as well. Yeah, there are some laydowns on the shorelines, but they're actually still standing timber in like 20 to 40 feet of water. Uh, there's also old railroad trestles. I think it was dammed off in the 20s when it was originally dammed off. So there are still structures underneath the water in like 40, 50 feet of water, which is pretty wild. Wow, that's wild. So the last question, I guess, that I'm thinking of at the moment is, 
are you stocking? Is the state stocking both tigers and trues, or is it only tigers? They are only stocking tigers. Uh, the reason they've done that is to control the rough fish. Uh, in the majority of the lakes, it's the squawfish, pike minnow, that they're trying to cut down on. Lake Taps is kind of more of the carp and the suckers to keep down on that. There's a heavy population of smallmouth as well uh, that they've kind of tried to reduce a little bit, but it's a very, very good fishery for panfish, smallmouth, largemouth, and the uh, the tiger muskie have definitely uh, made a name for themselves here. Yeah, that's interesting. I know I've done quite a bit of fishing in Montana, and squawfish are protected there on certain bodies of water. So it sounds like you have an abundance, potentially. Yeah, and they actually, on certain parts, actually the Columbia River has a bounty on squawfish where you can actually make some money on the number of squawfish you uh, you harvest. Yeah, that's pretty wild, but that would be a great musky diet. I mean, you're talking about basically a trout. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we also do have rainbow trout here in Lake Taps. And then uh, Merwin and Mayfield are the other two lakes on this side of the state, which both have kokanee and rainbow trout as well. They definitely have a good food source here. There's no no, lim- no limit to what they can eat. That's incredible. The kokanee salmon deal is a really cool thing as well. And obviously, uh, your fish are going to get good and fat eating squawfish and kokanee. That's for sure. Rainbows as well. Definitely. And Merwin Reservoir, that kokanee fishery is probably one of the best in the state. I mean, those fish eat like kings over there all the time. Uh, which is a much uh, deeper system and colder due to the river system that flows into the, into that lake. But those fish, you usually see them where they're very thick, but not as long. So I always think that our fish don't have a longer lifespan, but they definitely uh, bulk up for sure. So let's talk about your fish. I mean, what's the average length? Let's talk a little bit about how big around they get too. So right now in TAPS, we have a really, really good class of fish in the mid to upper 40-inch range. And you're seeing girths anywhere from 20, like a maybe a 40 to 42 with almost a 20-inch girth. So, I mean, they're eating well. Last year, we got a 46.5 by 23 uh, when Brian Klein came out and visited. So that was definitely a, a tank of the fish. Yeah, that's uh, incredible when you start talking about tiger muskies that size. I mean, that's one thing in the Midwest. Everybody wants to get a nice tiger, right? And we've heard about a bunch of different tigers getting caught the last couple of years on St. Clair. Throughout, you know, I mean, there's some guys doing it. Jeff Van Remortel up in northern Wisconsin is getting some tigers that are really nice. We're hearing about some out in North Dakota now. But to have the opportunity to fish tiger muskies the way you do, I mean, that's a whole different level in my opinion absolutely and and those no don't take any credit away from those guys fishing claire there's some mega mega tigers that are coming out of those water systems and even i mean utah i'm part of chapter 65 that's out of utah and and they always see a 50 inch plus fish come out every year uh one of our chapter youth members he caught a uh, 50 and a quarter last year uh, and that registered as the biggest tiger for all of Muskie's Inc. They're similar kind of fisheries, but the way those fish grow compared to here in Washington is quite a bit different. I mean, their summers are much hotter than they are here, 
So that I think our fish take a lot longer to get to that four foot range for sure. Yeah, it's always interesting. I mean, there's tigers planted out throughout the whole western part of the the country, and for the most part, they don't get exposed a whole lot. How do you compare fishing out there versus the Midwest stuff that you've done and and are still doing at times? You know, I've I've kind of learned several tactics over the years, obviously fishing the Midwest, fishing with some, some great sticks out there too. One of the gentlemen that I used to fish with quite a bit out there was Scott Keeper up in Hayward area. I learned a ton from him, uh, especially having confidence out in open water. Some of the tactics that have, I've produced, which I love trying new, is vertical jigging. I mean, using big blades, open water trolling, short line trolling. I mean, running baits four plus miles an hour and having those fish eat baits that are, hey, they might be only 15 feet back from the boat. So there's a lot of different things that I've applied from the Midwest that have worked out here. Going, a lot of people, I might not be the best shallow water fisherman. I like fishing a lot more open water. I mean, you can catch them all different ways here, which is really cool to see. Are we dealing with a lot of fishing pressure out there too, Ryan? Or is it kind of one of them deals where it's you and a few others? There's a handful here. Like I said, Lake Taps is very, very heavily populated for the recreational boaters. Working a full-time job and then trying to get out on the weekends, it can be challenging. But there's, there's usually fishermen maybe on the weekends on a Saturday. Everybody gets out 6 a.m., but all of them are off by noon. Well, I'm not off by noon. You know those fish are still biting during four-foot rollers, people wakeboarding around you, whatever it is. I've gotten on some really, really cool bites in the peak of the summer. High skies, bluebird. Yeah, you might have a, uh, a little bit of a moon phase in the middle of the day, but some of those big fish are eating when it's the peak of the summer. And there, I've got all sorts of boats around me talk about some of those mid to upper 40 inch fish. That's what I'm catching out in that open water during those peak times. Yeah, that's awesome. Super cool. Are you trolling too, or just catching primarily? I do a mixture of both. You're very familiar with it, Brad. Hey, you don't always want to cast, don't always want to troll, but you got to pick the right tactic for the, the specific scenario. But yeah, I've kind of mixed it in all of it certain times of the year. All right. So Ryan, obviously, you know, you're growing up in the Midwest, you're doing a lot of fishing here. You're making the move over there. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you broke down the water, kind of how you got started. Did you have a network of people that were over there fishing already, or was it something you had to learn on your own? How'd you go about this? I kind of had to learn on my own. So I think it was the year before, go backwards a little bit. Unfortunately, my sister and I lost our mother when I was 21. And then my sister was living out here. I think it was like four years after that, finally decided, hey, it was time to get out here. But just before that, I reached out to the local fishing page or whatever, fishing reports. I met a gentleman by the name of Todd Reese, still friends today. I put a post up seeing if anybody was willing to take me out. And it was on taps since my sister lived here. Made it a little bit easier to get to the water. And within a half hour, the gentleman, Todd, responded to me and said, hey, I got like couple hours to get on the water if you're willing to go and i said absolutely i think within a half hour i caught my first washington tiger going out with him so that was cool uh, and i think it was a couple years later is when i actually moved here and then uh, kind of picking apart the lake obviously uh, using your electronics is key 
back then I towed my boat from Illinois here. So that was 2012. So technology has changed quite a bit since then. But yeah, definitely uh, putting in the time, mapping out the lake. There's an endless amount of structure. So definitely knowing where you can and cannot go. So with the uh, timber and everything, the standing timber still. So coming out, obviously, I mean, so you met him. Obviously, he was probably ins- instrumental in helping you turn on to the fishery. But obviously, you know, one trip out with a guy or, or having a network of guys, I mean, were you looking at maps? Because, you know, like you said, things have changed in the last handful of years. I'm trying to get the listeners an idea on, let's just say this, this summer they're going, to chal- they're going to challenge themselves on a different fishery. I'm trying to, you know, obviously, most of our anglers that are listening, they're not coming out to fish by you. I mean, obviously, what's the drive out there anyways? I think, you've, I think I've heard this before, and it's ridiculous. <laughs> 30 plus hours. So yeah, it's a, it's not a, not a close drive whatsoever, but as far as kind of breaking down some water, I'll use this as an example. So there really isn't any Navionics kind of lake. There are some lake map chips. They're very, I don't know, they're very vague on what kind of information is on them. There are no hard paper maps, not like it was in the Midwest with your hotspot maps and everything. Lynn and I, my girlfriend, we, went to Eastern Washington to fish a couple of the lakes we have never fished. So you find kind of just a basic map that shows your public launches and things like that. It's more of utilizing Google earth, to be honest. Uh, that's probably one of the best ways to see some of the shallow water things you might be worried about hitting, obviously taking it slow. And I think this is for the guys that may not troll. This is probably the best time to troll is when you're learning new water Obviously, going at a slow speed, you can kind of pick apart different areas, finding weed beds, rock points, whatever it may be. Um, but that's probably the best way to uh, dial in a, a new body of water for yourself. And now I'm going to assume that most of these fish are hanging on classic structure points, weed beds, all that kind of stuff, same as we'd find over here in the Midwest? Absolutely. Yeah, they utilize the weed. There is different types of weeds they'll, they'll use at certain times of the year. But like I said, they the open water is something not a lot of guys target these fish that way. I mean, that's kind of been a thing for over the last, what, five, six years. Uh, a lot of guys kind of targeting those fish. And that's where a lot of our bigger fish are coming from, those pelagic fish that you may never even see them in the weeds throughout the season. The other thing we always hear, Ryan, is, you know, muskies are muskies are muskies. Were they eating the same baits that you'd find them eating here in the Midwest? To some degree, yes. I throw a lot of rubber, uh, a lot of bigger blades. But yeah, sometimes there's a lot of downsizing, some guys say. I mean, I'm catching fish on 12-inch baits, 8-inch baits, whatever it may be, all the way to the small stuff and kind of go through the different seasonality, using smaller baits in the spring. Yeah, it works, but there's certain times throughout the season. So, Ryan, I'm going to assume that I'm picturing what you're fishing out there, right? and that classic reservoir type look i'm going to guess you have fingers throughout that whole system and you're going to find some of the shallower stuff in those fingers how many lines can you troll i mean in the state of washington i don't know what's legal out there so on certain lakes they have a regulation where you can buy a two-pole endorsement and that two-pole endorsement is only allowed on certain lakes throughout the state lake taps is one of those lakes where you can use two rods per person as long as you have that endorsement Two rods, definitely you can put your time in and feel confident that you're going to get a bite being able to run two different types of, of baits. 
there's times where we're running six lines, depending on who we have in the boat and everything. Lynn, she became very addicted to this sport. And uh, whenever we can, we will run as many lines as we can. Absolutely. I think your learning curve really starts to uh, come into perspective at that mode. You know, when you're covering that much water with that many baits, not only that, but, you know, use trolling as a tool where you're actually locating different structures that you can go cast later whether that's the open water or if it's actual structure based, but you're going to definitely learn the water quickly. Absolutely. There's, there's so many different, the river channel, you got ins and outs of all these different weed beds here. Our basins are, I think the deepest basin is about 90 feet on Lake taps. So, I mean, there's endless of spots for these fish to go. And with that water level going down during the winter, those fish are used to being out in those, those deep basins for a few months out of the year. So I don't even think they have to leave those with that standing timber still there. The food is there with them. So I think some of those bigger fish definitely get comfortable in those, in those deeper holes and, and know, Hey, I don't have to go anywhere. You know, Ryan, I know one thing is these, it seems like anglers typically in the Midwest, especially in, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota, we'll use Wisconsin. I'm a lot more familiar with that. They're not traveling real fast. I think you've probably been up to Green Bay before. Most of those guys are traveling or trolling at, you know, 3.1 to 3.4 miles an hour. Is But I know, you know, with your experience down in Illinois, it seems like they like to crank up the speed a little bit. Are you finding that the fish out there are responding more to speed or are they slow moving like the Wisconsin guys? It's a kind of a mix throughout the season. I usually don't troll too much under three and a half miles an hour. And anybody that can say they can crank a bucktail at four plus miles an hour is crazy because <laughs> the boat's moving that fast that I don't think you can crank one. And that's totally a reaction strike on these fish. Yeah, of course, when you get low light periods and stuff like that, slow it down, maybe a little bit under three miles an hour, but usually not, not going too much slower than three and a half miles an hour throughout the season. So I'd say as a general rule of thumb, you're probably one of those anglers that's going to err on the side of speed. Definitely, and cover water and trigger that fish to eat. It's still one of those things that I, I as I go through a season, I, I'm always, you know, have it in my mind, hey, this season I need to concentrate more on speed, and as I'm catching fish at, you know, 3.2, 3.3 miles an hour, I never really dial it up, but it's always one of those things that I need to get out of that rut because I'm feeling that Wisconsin, it's not Wisconsin fish that will only eat at 3.2 miles an hour. It's that that's all they see and they eat at those, but they would there's the potential that instead of having a one fish day at 3.2 miles an hour, if I dial it up faster, I could have a two or three fish day. Yeah. And I've heard a lot too, in, in Wisconsin and things like that, where that 3.2 that, yeah, you might catch some of the bigger fish. And I've heard rumors of when guys are picking it up to four miles an hour, they're contacting smaller fish i don't think that's always the case here either i i put in a mix obviously with all the boat traffic i mean my boat's going up and down up and down so those baits are varying speed quite a bit and then picking up picking that speed up obviously on turns and things like that we're seeing a lot of different uh triggering i'll go back to a saying i think i've said it on the podcast before but you know especially with the uh, retrieval speeds when you're casting does the fat guy run to the fridge or does he walk to the fridge? And sometimes I think some of these bigger fish are just lazy. And sometimes when you hang a bait in their face, really nice and slow, it's almost like they can't resist. Sometimes it depends on what's in the fridge though, Brad. 
All right, that's valid. That's valid. But you know, I, I, it's just funny to me because people talk burn, burn, burn. You know, look for that most yeah. active fish, and and there's a time and a place, right? But I, I don't know. I look at it like if you have a bait right in its face and it's just hovering there, and sometimes speed also changes where your bait is in the water column. So that's another whole factor. You got to look at all of that. If you're trolling you might potentially have a bait that's going to go deeper with a higher speed. So who knows? I mean, that that's something that you got to feel out on a daily basis. You're absolutely right, Brad. And definitely now with the, the reels and the high speed and everything like that, I honestly think when all those high speeds came out, bites went down, just not having that slack line just for a little bit, especially jerk baits and, and rubber and everything like that that little extra millisecond of that pause of that bait definitely triggers those strikes. So I, I kind of switched back to going to a lower speed reel for pretty much everything for the most part. A lot easier to speed up versus slow, slow down. Yeah, absolutely. I know a few people that I should cut about half the spool of line off so it slows them down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it's weird. And like I said, there's a time and a place and, and, Figuring that out on a daily basis is going to definitely put more fish in your boat. That's for sure. Absolutely. And I, in my boat, I'm running a 21 footer and I fish out of the back of my boat and obviously putting the confidence baits in the front. And I mean, Lynn's up there all the time and I know she's going to, she's going to trigger a bite if, if they're eating. And I'm always trying to figure out the next bite in the back. So that, that's the thing, switching up speed, figuring out whatever the, the it could be a twitch bait, could be rubber could be cranking a blade as fast as I can. And we always have that the mixture of different styles going on in the boat. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit. You said you're always looking to find the next bite in the back. Okay. So we've talked about this on the podcast a bunch of times and we haven't talked about it recently was patterning. And I had a question I'd ask people all the time. Like, let's just say you were catching fish on whatever XYZ pattern yesterday. How long are you to continue on XYZ pattern the following day, assuming you're on, on the water back-to-back days before you're looking to change up to something else? Usually, if I if I trigger something in the back of the boat trying to find that next bite for us, I usually, that bait usually comes off my rod and goes up to the front, unless fish are just moving on everything. I will usually beat it until that bite is gone, which takes a while sometimes that, to uh, get it through your head to give up. I mean, I've seen it where bites have lasted two weeks, it could be, it could just be that moon phase or whatever it was. I mean, I think last year I had a bite. It went for almost two weeks long, but it was the same exact moon phase every single day. Could it have been just that or it could have been the lure. Who knows? Yeah. The one thing that I can relate to in this whole deal, like guiding, when I'm on the water every stinking day, I'm testing new stuff all the time as well, Jeff. And I think what that amounts to is you're going to go hit those spots that you had fish and you had success with a certain bait, but throughout those days, you always got to go, okay, there's got to be some fish moving. So let's go check out this spot. All right. We're going to go back to a spot. I know there's fish. We're going to go check out that spot and you keep going back and forth and you bounce through that throughout the day because those patterns only last a week, two days whatever it might be, maybe it's three weeks. You just don't know what's going to take place weather-wise. And I think weather is still number one. That's the biggest issue with musky fishing is weather. 
what I'm getting at is, is you're always testing new stuff throughout every day so that you're on to the next bike as soon as your old bike kind of starts to taper off. Yeah, Brad, I think I'm more or less looking for, when you have two people in the boat or in your case, I'm, I think it's rare that you're fishing, you know, with, I, I think it's rare you fish solo. So you're always fishing with multiple people. And I think it's a lot easier to change it up. You know, I'm looking at the solo angler, you know, they're, they've been throwing a bucktail all morning long and they haven't seen anything, but they were catching fish on a bucktail, you know, yesterday, you know, I've said it before, like musky fishing is a matter of, you know, making the right call and not making the right call. Like it's, and because you contact so few fish, it's very difficult to sometimes to cut bait on a pattern. And I think that's something that all of us anglers struggle with, especially guys that fish solo. Yeah, the solo fisherman is a little different gig. There's no question about that, Jeff. I mean, the neat thing about being in the back of the boat, like Ryan was talking about, or if you talk to any other guides that are guiding from the back of their boat, honestly, I think the guide is more of the test. You know what I mean? You're changing baits and you're doing different things, and you're always going to have the higher percentage baits that caught yesterday in the front of the boat, right? But you'll stumble upon another pattern with multiple people in the boat. That's a tough one when you're a solo angler. And I think uh, the learning curve is definitely a lot more drastic as a solo angler than it would be with a team, if you will. I agree with both of you on that too. Definitely being a single angler on yourself. It's, I mean, having confidence and in, in sticking with it can be a challenge. I mean, who knows if I would have switched, I could have got the bite, but if you just keep fishing, you never know, you might get it. So your, your mind kind of plays tricks on you too as well when you're, you're fishing solo. I think one way that you could potentially combat that is you fish a really good spot, a high percentage spot. You don't move anything throwing that bucktail. All right, peel back off of there and hit that same spot throwing rubber or a topwater or whatever it might be, a dive and rise. You're going to go at that thing a whole different way when you're using a different style of bait. So you know, go to the high percentage areas and mix it up a little bit. And I think you could uh, probably start beating some of that solo versus a team, if you will. Yeah, and definitely being able to troll two lines, even if it's one line. I mean, covering water and finding those those high percentage spots as well and coming back to them and casting is, is huge, especially if you are fishing solo. Did that help at all? Of course. I'm always looking for tips for, you know, solo angler because I fish solo yeah, quite a bit. Now that my daughter's been getting more into it, I would say I fish solo less. And I, th- I think it's funny because Ryan's like, yeah, whatever, I'm catching. If I catch fish out of the back, it automatically that bait goes up to the front, and that's kind of how it is with me. Like if I moved something, caught something, whatever, I'll be like, hey, Lexi, you, you know, you want this bait because I'm guessing he's the same. He just wants whoever's with him in the boat to just catch muskies. So, uh, yeah, so anyways, Brad, long story short, yeah, that's kind of how it is. I mean, I'm always looking. I We get questions about solo anglers enough because i think there's a fair amount of them out there i think there's a fair amount that fish with a partner as well but you know i think the solo angler is definitely at a disadvantage and i think we can all agree on that yeah absolutely i mean networking is a huge key too if you have others that that you can talk to and amazingly enough i will say this you might be on one body of water say two hours away from me but if you're moving fish on a particular bait I might be able to put that same bait on and start moving fish two hours, three hours away from where you are on a different body of water. So that's something to consider as well. Yeah, for sure. I won't disagree. And you know, I don't have as many friends as you, Brad, so I got to rely on a much smaller network, but 
there'll be times where I'll be fishing, you know, let's say up by me in northern Wisconsin, and I have friends that are fishing the other half of northern Wisconsin, and I'll kind of talk back and forth with what's going on with them just to kind of get a general idea to see how those muskies are have been reacting. Obviously, it's not always picture perfect, but at least it's a start. Well, I don't think it's ever picture perfect. It's muskie fishing, so... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, definitely. And having your networking is, is huge. I mean, like I said, I still keep in contact with a lot of my friends from Illinois that love the musky fish. And we talk throughout the summers and everything and bite. And we'll see at the same time, halfway across the country, we're both catching fish. So it's pretty wild. I mean, how that works. It's all kind of the similarities that happen, too. Let me ask you this, Ryan. If I was catching fish at noon and 8 p.m. and I called you, would you be able to relate that for your time frame out there? You know, the, the crazy part is, is that based off of the moon, the sun, whatever it might be, majors and minors, you potentially could find that same window. Yeah, definitely. And, and we're uh, two hours behind from you guys. So definitely, like you said, 8 o'clock, 6 o'clock here, that's, uh, that's prime time, right? now and we'd never really see a really good night bite i've explored it quite a bit and i think everything has to be aligned perfectly for that to happen so i mean we've got i've given it a lot of time but it it doesn't pan out that much that could potentially be that they're half pike you know what i mean if you think about it i think of all the different pike i've caught after dark and it's very very few and i don't i can't claim to even know that much about tigers i mean i've caught some but ultimately you know the pike side after dark is not something that usually happens exactly and having my connections and friends that are in utah as well they kind of compare the different how the fisheries act they get a, quite a bit of uh, night bites throughout the season too so which is pretty wild and they get a lot of topwater eats maybe it's a confidence thing for me i don't throw it enough but that's something kind of I've been going after the last couple of years. Chris Reby and uh, Jeremy Burris were out here the other year. And I think the first two hours we were out in the water, Reby catches one on a topwater. I think he's just a god with a topwater. That's it. <laughs> and the confidence. Hey, Ryan, you said your season. How long is your season? Uh, our season is open all year round. The only challenge is the, uh, the water levels fluctuation in those water levels and actually being able to get on the water and with those water levels and obviously little light periods full-time job trying to get out during the winter is challenging i'd love to be able to spend a straight week out on the water to try and figure out some of those winter bites but we kind of see it in utah and here when that water temp gets into the 50s those fish kind of turn off quite a bit it's really weird that that happens in utah as well uh, and all over the tiger range. So they, they kind of go dormant and go deep and you, d you don't see them until spring. It's kind of weird. That's amazing. It's almost like their metabolism slow to a point where it makes it tougher. Absolutely. And I think they're, they're deeper than you kind of want to target them, but I obviously they're musky. They still got to eat. So, I mean, there's, there's gotta be a way to get them. Absolutely. Do you deal with the thermocline at all, Ryan? being that it's a reservoir i mean are you flowing enough water that it really doesn't become a factor no there really isn't a thermocline that usually forms this past year heard from a couple anglers that they did see a thermocline form this year 
just due to the temperatures we had this year, uh, we had record temps in the 100 to 115 degrees this last summer. And we usually don't see water temps in the 80 degrees maybe once or twice a year, but that's it. So it, this year might have been an anomaly for that. Were you dealing with a drought? I, like here in Minnesota, depending on where you were in Minnesota, but pretty much the whole state dealt with drought. And then Jeff's over in Wisconsin where they were getting pummeled with rain all summer last year. Did you deal with any drought? Last year, no, not too much. I mean, like I said, they, they can still let water into the lake just because of the runoff from the mountains. But it was when we had those record heat, you could definitely see Mount Rainier where it had no snow on it, which is very, very odd. So pretty much we got all the runoff we could last year. That's crazy. We're going to have plenty of runoff this year. That's what I was going to say, Brad. Your water levels are going to be the opposite of where we were. We have almost no snow. I sent Carrie a picture the other day. I mean, you could see the grass. and, and I mean, you can still kind of see the grass, even though we just got some. My kids had a snow day with three-quarters of an inch of snow because they predicted a bunch of ice and stuff, and they didn't get any of it. So my kids got a nice day off of school, and they got, you know, with almost no snow. So, but we, it's still how it is here. So we're, it'll be interesting to see because there are some, you know, lakes that they draw down. And right now I don't know that they're going to get filled back up unless we get a bunch of rain. Well, let's hope that we don't have those issues like I did last year. I mean, it was crazy. There was multiple lakes that I couldn't even get my boat into. So when you drop two, three feet of water, it gets a little hairy. That's how it was here about a week ago. And they just let the water in, which is much earlier than it, it has in years past. But yeah, it can, it can get pretty sketchy trying to, uh, trying to launch in those conditions. So Ryan, you know, being a reservoir, how many of these fish are potentially going through the spillway, if you will, and going to other bodies of water? Have you experimented with any of that? Lake Taps is pretty well-maintained. Uh, the inlet is, uh, there's a little bit of a dam, but it kind of feeds underneath the surface. So when the water level is super high, they could potentially jump the dam, kind of like the Madison chain. So you guys have seen those videos. Uh, that could happen. Uh, as far as the outlet, it's just kind of the same thing. It's a flume. They used to use it for power, which no longer. But there hasn't been any talks of uh, any muskie making it down through the river system. But you never know. Never fished it. So that could be something in the future to try. How big are the bodies of or the, the rivers or streams that come out of there? Like, say, the discharge. I mean, is it a, a pretty decent river or is it just a small trickle or what are we dealing with? Decent size. It's nothing huge, but all of the rivers eventually flow into the Puget Sound. So they all connect, obviously starting up at the mountains and then damming off to make the different lakes that are here and then the outflow. I mean, there's a decent amount of current that runs through, but then eventually it kind of tapers off and gets into the sound, which is only about 20 minutes from my house, from where the lake is. I got a funny story about Puget Sound. My cousin bought his boat. My cousin lives in northwestern Montana, so he's about an hour north of Missoula and about an hour west of Flathead Lake, uh, if you're familiar with the Kalispell Whitefish area. But anyway... He went and bought his boat. I don't know, remember how many years ago this was, but he was all excited. He's like, I got downriggers. I'm going to go do some salmon fishing on Puget Sound and blah, blah, blah. And his first day on the water, 
he sends me a picture of, of his first catch in his brand new boat. And it was about a 12 to 15 inch diameter starfish, if you can imagine. He somehow <laughs> crashed his downrigger balls on the bottom and was dragging something and hooked the starfish. So I thought that was kind of funny. That's not a normal catch, definitely. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever known anybody to catch one on a line and hook. So that was pretty good. <laughs> Well, you guys, you definitely have some really cool opportunities, not only for the muskies, but all the different species that Washington has to offer. I mean, it's so cool to, to talk and think about some of those different bodies of water throughout the country. Yeah, it's definitely a cool part of the world. And you have like endless amounts of uh, water to fish. Uh, you go on the east side of the, the mountains and it's totally different. It's like a desert over there here in the Seattle kind of area. You, you know, you hear the, the rainy, the gloomy days and everything. You'd think it'd be prime musky weather all the time, but it really doesn't rain as much as everybody thinks once it comes uh, summertime. I, I'll deal with the rain versus the snow in the winter, but I jinx myself because this week we got a little bit of flurries that we had on the ground this morning. Well, the, the weather on that side of the Rockies is actually really beautiful. I, I've experienced that myself. So you have that in your whole world out there as well have you done any of fishing on the columbian like for sturgeon or the walleyes that offers out in that area as well i have not we we actually ventured off early last spring to idaho to fish for uh, sturgeon we got my owners a trip out there and uh, experienced the sturgeon for the first time which is unbelievable i think you and i talked a little bit about that at the show and that's on the snake river so, which connects to the Columbia, and it's there's prehistoric dinosaurs all over that system, which is amazing. Speaking of other waters, you're talking about Montana. That's kind of one of my goals here, uh, either the next year or so. I'm uh, going to plan a trip to go fish some of the waters in Idaho, and then I do want to get to a couple of the tiger waters in Montana as well. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible to think, and you kind of blew my mind when you said that. You know, they've been putting tigers in your systems out there since 88. I didn't realize that that program had been that long. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And seeing what could actually potentially be in these waters, one of these days, it's, I'm going to hook into the one and it's going to happen. I'm just waiting for it. I appreciate every single bite I get, no matter big or small. Small ones help you figure out that piece of the puzzle, like you always say, Brad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what it's all about. You're supposed to enjoy the sport. and. I know you do for sure. Do you have any idea what the state record is out there? The state record, they don't, really don't go by weight. They go by inches, and I think it was a 50 and a half. Or sorry, they do go by weight, and it's, it was a 50 and a half. I think I want to say it was only 32 or 34 pounds, something like that. But like I said, there's very rarely ever a recorded of a 50-incher, and those ones usually come from the east side of the state where the water temps get a lot hotter. Interesting. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a heck of a tiger muskie, that's for sure. Absolutely. How about the numbers that they're actually stocking in these bodies? Is it every year, every other year? What does the program look like that way? Uh, they do a pretty good job at making sure it's consistently stocked every year throughout the Seven Lakes. Uh, there was a couple of years that they stopped, or sorry, a couple of years they took a break just because of the water levels here at Lake Taps specifically, 
but they're averaging between 800 to 2000. And those fish aren't, they're, they're not finger links. They're, they're anywhere from like 12 to 20 inches. So there's a good survival rate on the, on those fish. Well, the beauty of it is too, is your forage base. It probably allows for them to all grow really nice quickly too. Yeah, definitely. And, and there was in years past where you'd see some of these fish, some of these older fish now, you're seeing it where some of their fins are kind of messed up, chewed up a little bit. And I think the, the biologist has kind of figured it out now because we're seeing a lot younger fish that don't have the split fins and kind of some of the deformities and everything. I think that was from the hatcheries in years past, raising them to be the size they are when they stock them. Those fish are just cramped and they're kind of, there's some cam- cannibalism that goes on too. We've experienced that in Utah and they stock finger links there. And there's actually pictures from chapter members doing the stocking and you'll see one muskie eating another one. It's interesting. So Ryan, one thing we didn't touch on, and you kind of mentioned it a few times, you talked about Utah. Is that an area that you fish? I mean, I'm guessing that can't be super close. Is that an area that you fish on an annual basis? I've been out there a couple times now. It's 14 hour drive for me. So it's not very close. Our chapter member has some really good anglers in it. Specifically, there's a gentleman by the name of Joe Weisner. He's a very good multi-species, and I've kind of connected with him in years past. He's been up here, fished with me. We've kind of bounced ideas off each other over the years. But it's really cool to kind of see how they fish their fish versus me fishing mine. I'll go there, and I'll apply tactics I use up here and, and be successful, and they kind of see that. And then kind of vice versa. They'll come up here, hey, do you try this? And it works and it pans out. So it's, it's really cool kind of seeing how that all comes together. Yeah, absolutely. It's like something we always say, you know, like you can always learn something from, from every angler, regardless of skill level. I know some of these guys you're talking about, you know, they're not novice anglers, but I mean, anytime somebody gets in my boat, if I have a newer angler or even somebody I'm not as familiar with, whatever, like I always try to pay attention to what they're doing. Absolutely. And you should be learning on the water no matter what, if you catch a fish or not, um, it definitely helps help put those uh, pieces together. And if you're, if you're not having fun on the water, there's no point in doing it, right? Absolutely. Although sometimes I wonder why we do do it to ourselves, but you know, it's, uh, I, and then, and then you get the follow or you get the catch or you lose one or whatever. And then you go, Oh yeah. Okay. That's why we do it. Oh, absolutely. And I, I like to have fun with it too. Lynn, Lynn has been at it for about mm, four years now. We have some fun in the boat and we always, we kind of got this board in my house where we got a board. One side of the board says we suck. One side of the board says we win. So we kind of tally up throughout the year and say, Hey, we got to get our numbers up because we're sucking. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. On the boat, having, having masks in the boat, it keeps the youth engaged. I love teaching new anglers and especially the youth, getting them out on the water. And I mean, that's the future of our fisheries and keeping it together. But yeah, it always keeps it fun. And Brad, I laughed on your last episode of uh, 10,000 casts. Congratulations on that, by the way, with your, uh, your shark eating, uh, eat, eating the head. <laughs> uh, that's one of them toys in the boat to keep Mika entertained, right? Yep. You got to have them. <laughs> Squirt guns and all those little chintzy little toys that can keep a, a youth brain into the game, I guess, if you will. I'm not convinced those are for Mika. <laughs> no, I, I've been I've been known to play with those squirt guns. Don't don't kid yourself. 
Well, I see the cast of characters you fish with. <laughs> it's always a good time in my boat. That's that's what you got to look at, Jeff. Right. Yeah. That's what I was. That's what I was getting at, Brad. <laughs> but I will say this: I rarely shoot anybody with a squirt gun because if you do, they retaliate and uh, it can get kind of messy. So I uh, I try to stay away from that. <laughs> yeah, especially especially the recreational boaters. Sometimes they'll uh, they don't get the hint. You're trying to actually tell them, "Hey, back off!" It, but they're thinking you're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys having me on. I know we've talked over the years at the shows and everything, so I know we've uh, talked about doing this, and it, it was fun to get on the phone with you guys. And I definitely appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. We just want to thank you for coming out. I hope that you guys have a great season. Sounds like an awesome fishery. If somebody wants to take a 30-hour drive from the Midwest, it's definitely a place to check out. Although I'm imagining you could probably just, well, I'm guessing you couldn't unless they're going to jump in your boat. You have to, uh, you'd have to get to an airport and, you know, get a boat. But it'd probably be much easier and less or more convenient to just take a flight out there. Absolutely, and a lot of friends do that. They bring their reels. I've got extra rods, things like that. That's definitely a challenge uh, when I'm living so far away. And uh, Brad, the offer's still on the table. We've talked in the past. I want to come out, both of you guys. Got a place to stay, got a boat to use, and you're good to go. I definitely will take you up on that, Ryan, at some point. I, I spent something. It's a bucket list thing. I've always wanted to go do it. And uh, at some point here, we're going to try to make that happen. Awesome. Looking forward to it. You know, Ryan, what you should do is shout out uh, your Instagram as well as your uh, Facebook to the listeners so that they can uh, kind of see what you actually get done out there. Yeah, absolutely. My Facebook is Ryan Elizondo. I live out in Bonnie Lake, Washington, so that's me. Instagram is, you can search Ryan Elizondo, or you can also search MuleHunter85. So don't ask where that came from. That's an old thing between a couple buddies. Uh, but it kind of makes sense now since uh, tigers are kind of like a, a mule and no reproduction. <laughs> Absolutely. That's cool. Well, Ryan, thanks again for coming out. We want to thank all of our listeners for taking time out of their schedules to put up with us again for another roughly an hour episode. And we'll catch everybody with a new episode again next Wednesday. Thank you, guys. Have a good night. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks Ryan. Thanks, Ryan.